0: Eye in the Sky Media. This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Criminal Mischief. I'm your host, Carolyn Osorio. You're listening to Episode 57, The Annihilator. In 1971, the List family resided in the bedroom community of Westfield, New Jersey. Their home was resplendent, an 18-room Victorian mansion called Breeze Knoll. It was the most expensive home in the Westfield community. The mansion was built in 1885 and even had a ballroom with a glass ceiling that was assigned Tiffany, said to be worth $100,000 at the time. The List family had lived there for six years. 46-year-old John List was a successful accountant. He was married to Helen, who was 47. Together, they had three teenage children, Patricia, or Patty, who was 16, then 15-year-old John, and little Freddie, who was 13. John List's 84-year-old mother lived in her own apartment on the third floor. John was a devout Lutheran, and he taught Sunday school. Recently, though, the family had gone on a trip that had taken them away from Breeze Knoll through the Thanksgiving holiday. They were visiting a sick relative in North Carolina, so they'd been excused from school. Patty was a bright light in the class, so she was sorely missed. But it had almost been a month since her father had sent a note saying that the family would be out of town. She should be home by now. Many of Patty's friends were concerned, including her drama teacher, Edwin Iliano. In fact, he was so concerned he drove over to Breeze Knoll and paid a visit to her home to find out where she was. The last time Patty had been to school was on November 9th. It was around 4.30 in the afternoon on December 7th when the Westfield police would receive a call from Patty's drama teacher and also Barbara, who was a member of their drama group. They were asking the police to do a welfare check on the family. At 7.30 that night, a captain would telephone a Dr. William Kunick, who was a neighbor of the Liss, who shared that he hadn't seen the family for a while. He, too, was concerned, especially about Alma, who was John Liss' mom. She was 84 years old and lived on the third floor. The whole thing was just odd, because the family dog hadn't been seen either, and the light bulbs in the house had been on day and night. In fact, they'd been burning so long that, individually, as they began to burn out— one by one, they weren't replaced. I mean, why would all the lights be on and yet there was never anyone home for a month? It just was out of character and it rubbed people the wrong way. It was 9.30 when the police arrived at the List home. This was after Mrs. Kunick, the doctor's wife, had told them that a white Pontiac had been seen at the List home multiple times over the last few weeks and it was now in the List's driveway. When the officers showed up, they found patty's teacher and her friend they were the ones who were in the white pontiac and so now mrs kunick was also on the list property all three of them were really concerned about the family and so an officer went to the house and found an unlatched window adjoining the porch and entered the dining room his partner would follow him inside followed by barbara and edwin inside the list house was completely dark on the first floor it was freezing inside and music could be heard playing throughout the home's intercom system. There was a faint smell of something awful. A flashlight brought a beam of light into focus and the police officers entered a pantry. They flashed their light on the floor and saw what appeared to be dried blood. Edwin, who was familiar with the home, would lead the officers into the living room where he opened a large hanging drape which led into the ballroom. An officer shined his flashlight into the blackness, and there he saw four figures lying inside sleeping bags on the floor. The officer walked closer and saw that the faces of the four bodies were hidden behind fabric, but it was clear that inside those sleeping bags lay four bodies. They'd all been shot at point-blank range, Helen and her three children, Patricia, John, and Freddie. The house was searched, and another body was found on the third floor. It was Alma, John Liss' 84-year-old mother. She too had been shot. In the den, a series of notes, letters, and directions were found on a desk. One read, guns and ammo. The other was addressed to the finder. 1. Please contact the proper authorities. 2. The key to the desk is in an envelope addressed to myself. Three. The keys to the files are on the desk. The note was signed, J. List. There were five other notes that were found, one of which was for a Pastor Ray Winkle. Dear Pastor Ray Winkle, I am sorry to add this additional burden to your work. I know that what has been done is wrong from all that I have been taught and that any reason that I might give will not make it right. But you are the one person that I know that, while not condoning this, will at least possibly understand why I felt that I had to do this. One, I wasn't earning anywhere near enough to support us. Everything I tried seemed to fall to pieces. True, we could have gone bankrupt and maybe gone on welfare. Two, but that brings me to my next point. Knowing the type of location that one would have had to live in plus The environment for the children, plus the effect on them knowing that they were on welfare, was just more than I thought they could and should endure. I know they were willing to cut back, but this involved a lot more than that. Three, with Pat being so determined to get into acting, I was also fearful as to what that might do continuing to be a Christian. I'm sure it wouldn't have helped. Four, also with Helen not going to church, I knew that this would harm the children eventually in their attendance. I had continued to hope that she would begin to come to church soon. But when I mentioned to her that Mr. Utes said he wanted to pay her an elder's call, she just blew up and said she wanted her name taken off the church rolls. Again, this could only have an adverse result for the children's continued attendance. So that is the sum of it. If any one of these had been the condition, we might have pulled through but this was just too much. At least I'm certain that all have gone to heaven now. If things had gone on, who knows if this would be the case? Of course, mother got involved because doing what I did to my family would have been a tremendous shock to her at this age. Therefore, knowing that she is also a Christian, I felt it best that she be relieved of the troubles of this world that would have hit her. After it was all over, I said some prayers for them from the hymn book that was the least i could do now for the final arrangements helen and the children have all agreed that they would prefer to be cremated please see to it that the costs are kept low for mother she has a plot at the frankenmuth church cemetery please contact mr herman schelkus route 4 vassar michigan 41768 he's married to a niece of mother's and knows what arrangements are to be made She always wanted Reverend Herman Zender of Bay City to preach the sermon, but he's not well. Also, I'm leaving some letters in your care. Please send them on and add whatever comments you think appropriate. The relationships are as follows. Mrs. Lydia Meyer, mother's sister. Mrs. Eva Meyer, Helen's mother. Jean Seifert, Helen's sister. Also, I don't know what will happen to the books and personal things, but to the extent possible, I'd like for them to be distributed as you see fit. Some books might go into the school or church library. Originally, I had planned for November 1st, All Saints Day. I thought it would be an appropriate day for them to get to heaven. As for me, please let me be dropped from the congregation rolls. I leave myself in the hands of God's justice and mercy. I don't doubt that he is able to help us, but apparently he saw fit not to answer my prayers the way I hoped they would be answered this made me think that perhaps it was for the best as far as the children's souls are concerned i know that many will only look at the additional years they could have lived but if finally they were no longer christians what would be gained also i'm sure many will say how could anyone do such a horrible thing my only answer is it isn't easy and was only done after much thought Pastor, Mrs. Norris may possibly be reached at 802 Pleasant Hill Drive, Elkin, home of her sister. One other thing. It may seem cowardly to have always shot from behind, but I didn't want any of them to know, even at the last second, that I had to do this to them. John got hurt more because he seemed to struggle longer. The rest were immediately out of pain. John didn't consciously feel anything either. Please remember me in your prayers. I will need them whether or not the government does its duty as it sees it. I'm only concerned with making peace with God. And of this, I am assured, because of Christ dying, even for me. P.S. Mother is in the hallway in the attic, third floor. She was too heavy to move. John With this confession letter from John List, there was no wondering who murdered the family. The two guns that were found in his desk would prove to be the murder weapons, and right away, a nationwide manhunt was underway for the father who had murdered his entire family, John List. Three days later, they would find his car at the long-term parking lot at Kennedy Airport, with the keys inside and John List's identification. The parking voucher that had been found inside the vehicle was dated for November 10th. It was clear John List had no intention of returning, and wherever he was going, clearly he didn't think he'd need his ID. Throughout the home, John had used scissors to excise his image from every family photo in the mansion. Police would discover that there were two mortgages on the house, and that no payment had been made after November 1st. John List had lost his high-paying job at a bank and he hadn't been able to secure work commensurate to what he'd been making before. He didn't share this with his family, about his unemployment. He still left every day as if he were going to work, and whiled away the time at the train station and around town. He was also secretly stealing money from his mother's accounts to pay the bills. So as far as
1: the family was concerned, he spent the day at work. So why would a guy do all that stuff and and engage in this kind of pretext? Because he has this need to maintain this order. And you can look at it all, and from somebody else's perspective, you can look at it and say, "This is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. What is this guy nuts?" And you can use the term in that kind of way. But for these people, it all makes sense. This is what is a driving force in their life to live this kind of way and to have this meticulous record keeping and that's what he did for a living he kept accounting records which organizes all the financial information about a business but he probably did in fact begin to plan some of these things and think about what he was going to do at a time when he wrote the five-page letter i don't really know he may have written it that day he may have written it Two days before, three days before, but at some point he began to realize what he was going to do, and so then he carried out his plan.
0: That's Ken Lanning.
1: I'm one of those people that, whether I like it or not, I'm known primarily for what I used to be. I'm a retired FBI agent. was assigned to the FBI Behavioral Science Unit for 20 years and did consulting work with them for another 10 or so.
0: During Ken's career, he had a front row seat when the Behavioral Science Unit was in its infancy.
1: And then eventually I got my orders and reported there in January of 1981, and I was assigned to the Behavioral Science Unit, That's the unit I wanted to go to. And to make a long story short, the unit started out as just doing training and education, but eventually moved into the area of research and case consultation that many people started to call profiling.
0: Ken says he was made aware of the John List investigation when he was a rookie agent. It didn't take long for New Jersey police to reach out to the FBI. They needed help tracking down John List. Because every lead was a dead end. I
1: don't know whether it was John Douglas or Bob Ressler who were assigned to List case. And What happened was, when List disappeared, after they found the bodies, after he had killed him about 30 days later, when they found the bodies of his entire family and the police were trying to find him. He became a fugitive. So they enlisted the assistance of the Behavioral Science Unit as just one piece of what they were doing. They were many doing many different things, but one of the things they thought is they could consult with the Behavioral Science Unit to see if they could do a personality assessment, better term than profiling, of John List. And what might he go, where might he go, what might he be doing, what might he look like, how he might change his appearance, also considering the possibility that at some point he might commit suicide and things like that. The other thing that happened during this time is many people began to think that he may have been the guy that's still to this day known as D.B. Cooper, the guy who hijacked the plane and jumped out the back of it there.
0: The infamous D.B. Cooper. According to the FBI's website, on the afternoon of November 24, 1971, a couple of weeks after John List had annihilated his family, a nondescript man calling himself Dan Cooper approached the counter of Northwest Orient Airlines in Portland, Oregon. He used cash to buy a one-way ticket on flight number 305 bound for Seattle, Washington. Thus began one of the great unsolved mysteries in FBI history.
1: And John List is one of what's called a family annihilator pretty extreme turn annihilator, but I guess that's what he did to his family. He annihilated them. But he's not the only one. There are several of these cases out there. And there were a couple that the unit had where they were trying to do the same thing in those cases that they were doing in the List case. So it was just a type of case. And what, when, when police departments would contact the FBI Behavioral Science Unit, they generally contacted the unit about unusual or different types of cases. If this was a type of case that the police saw day in and day out a regular kind of crime, and certainly I don't like the idea of referring to any kind of crime as regular crime or any kind of abuse of children as regular abuse. But when when the behavioral science would be called, it was usually because the case was unusual or different and not the typical thing that police departments would see.
0: The question that seemed incomprehensible to answer was why John Liss would murder his entire family.
1: as I know he's never been arrested for anything else he's never committed any kind of violent crimes he just has this strange problem in his life and the interesting thing about it if you see somebody who has this condition and you were just to guess what he might do for a living the answer is what he's an accountant (laughs) and that's exactly what this was he had a master's degree in accounting and so that's what he was And so he was this guy, and in addition to that, which is also a common characteristic of obsessive compulsive personality disorder, he was excessively had these religious, strong, very religious beliefs about right and wrong and what you were supposed to do. And the problem that he had is that his oldest daughter wanted to become an actress, and she was starting to dress a little bit different. She had reached puberty, she was an adolescent, and many adolescents to varying degrees want to rebel. that was one thing that he could not tolerate and he began to see that she was doing this he also had a lot of problems with his wife his wife was an alcoholic and there are rumors i don't know whether it's ever been verified that she also had syphilis that continued to get worse over the years that they were married and she began to significantly deteriorate so this rigid order in his life that was so important to him was falling apart and he had lost his job and his father Had told him when he was growing up, what is the single most important thing that a man needs to do is provide for and protect his family. That's the most important thing.
0: Knowing what motivated John List didn't make it any easier to find him. And without any fresh clues as to his whereabouts, the case went cold. But over the years, there were two common beliefs, that John List had taken his own life or that he'd fled to the Midwest. This was based on tips that they received, but had never panned out. In 1989, investigators had a lightning bolt idea after watching a popular show.
1: Tonight, on America's Most Wanted.
0: They contacted America's Most Wanted and asked them to do an episode on the John List investigation. America's Most Wanted agreed to do the show, but the only photo they had was from 18 years before. Remember, he'd cut his image out of most of his family photos. The one they had to work with was black and white, and for the most part, John List was utterly forgettable. The only distinguishing features were his glasses and a surgical scar by one of his ears. So they got creative and commissioned Frank Bender, a forensic sculptor, to create a three-dimensional, age-progressed clay bust. Part of the artist's process was to work with a forensic psychologist to put together a psychological profile of John List, who they believed he'd be in 1989. They used old photos of John and those of his parents. So the sculptor began to get a feel for how List would age physically, but they also looked into John List's past for breadcrumbs, how he'd been raised by strict German parents who were very religious. He was an only child and religion was a focal point in his upbringing, and so was his mother, who was said to be a dominating force in his life, and very overprotective. John would earn a master's degree in accounting, but was socially awkward and had few friends. He also had a history of losing jobs. According to this psychological profile that had been worked up by the forensic psychologist, who had teamed up with the sculptor, they surmised that John List had murdered his family not out of some belief that he was saving their souls, but because of his own anger and feelings of inadequacy, that he had retaliated against his own family for his own feelings of entrapment by women of authority and his own family. Ultimately, the sculpture would feature a receding hairline, a slack jawline, and downturned lips, complete with a surgical scar behind the ear, and the bust was dressed in a suit and tie, what they believed that he would wear. And the final touch was to add the glasses. Based on his profile, they thought that he would be too practical to wear contacts, and they meticulously searched for glasses that were thick and black frames, because the sculptor believed that he'd wear glasses like that to not only make him look important, but to also hide his failures behind those thick frames. On a Sunday night in May of 1989, America's Most Wanted featured the List Murders, and of course the age-progressed sculpture. That night, two women in Denver, Colorado were watching the show, and by the end, they were convinced that John List was their previous neighbor who had recently moved to Virginia. Their neighbor's name was Bob Clark. On June 1st, less than two weeks after the broadcast, and after 18 years as a fugitive, John List was arrested at his place of employment, where he worked as an accountant
1: three-dimensional sculpture that they had made in Liszt's case. It wasn't really a drawing, but it was a sculpture of his head. And they had an artist, a sculptor, who sculpted this thing from images and pictures that he had. And then he worked with a psychologist who was telling him about some of his personality characteristics and what he might look like and what kind of glasses he might wear and so on. Anyway, and they were doing this for America's Most Wanted. And so they wound up after many months of working on this thing They put it out there, and there you could see it. It was three-dimensional. It wasn't just a drawing. It was two-dimensional. It was three-dimensional. And they showed it, and immediately, I think, within a relatively short period of time, uh, several people called in, and they said they knew who that was.
0: An agent would ask this Bob Clark if he was John List, and he denied it. However, a fingerprint comparison between Bob Clark would match John List's fingerprints on a gun permit form that he'd filled out one month before the murders. He also had a scar behind his ear, a receding hairline, a jowled chin, the downturned lips, and the same style of thick black glasses. There was no doubt this was John List. Investigators would uncover that after the murders, John List had made his way to Denver, where he applied for a social security card in the name of Robert P. Clark on November 22, 1971. List would settle in Colorado, where he sought employment as an accountant. He eventually began attending the local Lutheran church and became friends with his neighbor, who would ultimately introduce him to her friend and the pair would marry. During John List's trial, the details of the murders of his family were revealed. At about 9 a.m. on November 9, 1971, after the three list children had gone to school, John went up to his wife, who was sitting at the breakfast table drinking coffee, and shot her in the back of the head from behind at point-blank range. He then went to the third floor of the home, where his mother lived in separate quarters, and he shot her in the head at point-blank range from behind. He was unable to move her body, so he left it. He then returned to the first floor, rolled his wife's body onto a sleeping bag, and dragged the body into the ballroom. Then, according to him, quote, cleaned up the mess and ate lunch. After his meal, he went to the bank, where he went to a safety deposit box and redeemed about $2,000 in savings bonds, which is the equivalent of more than $15,000 today. Those bonds were in both his name and his mother's. He also cashed two checks— Then he went to the post office and placed a stop order on his mail and also that of his mother's. In the afternoon, he picked up his oldest child, Patricia, from high school. He drove her home, and once inside, shot her in the left side of the face. He then went to pick up his son, Freddie, from junior high school. And as soon as they were inside the home, he shot him in the head. Finally, John List went to pick up his son, who was playing soccer. He watched the game, and the two arrived home together. But somehow... 16 year old john seemed to realize that something was off with his father as he tried to shoot him point-blank range from behind which he had done to the rest of his family but john saw it coming and after the first shot he wasn't dead and fought back that day his father would shoot him a total of 10 times he rolled his children's bodies onto sleeping bags and dragged them into the ballroom by their mother he would cover each of their faces with pieces of fabric John List then went about cleaning up. By telephone and through notes, he would stop the milk and newspaper deliveries. And he also made arrangements for the children to be absent from their school and other activities until after Thanksgiving. He then wrote the letters to his family and pastor, prepared himself supper, and turned in for the night in the home where his family lay dead. Early the next morning, John List packed up some things, and before leaving his home forever, He would turn down the thermostat to its lowest setting in an effort to slow the decomposition. He also turned on a radio station that played religious hymns throughout the empty rooms, as he quietly walked out the door, unseen.
1: The interesting thing to me what makes this case so fascinating is after he commits this crime and he decides to murder his whole family, what does he then do? First of all, his, his mother is upstairs in the attic. It's hard to get her downstairs, so he just leaves her up there. But the rest of the family killed on the main floor, brings them out into the ballroom part, I guess, a big room there, and he begins to lay them out on sleeping bags, and they're all laid there. So now they're all laying there dead. And now what is he going to do? He's not going to kill himself, and he's going to try to get away with this crime. So what does he do? He engages in the kind of thing that only somebody who understands obsessive compulsive personality disorder can understand. He then begins first, he cleans the place up as best he can cleans up the blood and everything else where all these people are shot in different locations. Then he realizes, well, he needs some time to get away. else they believe it may have been one of his classmates who claims he doesn't know him he takes on this new name and identity which is not that difficult to do you just got to get a birth certificate and you start building a new identity and he goes out there and essentially at that point as best we know and can put it together particularly because he gets remarried he just puts together the same life he had the same meticulous life which revolves around the Lutheran Church, being a devout Lutheran, reaching out, Christian outreach, helping other people, and so on and so forth. And apparently his wife, when they, when they eventually arrested him for this crime, his second wife, the one he married after he committed all these murders, she just couldn't believe it. She said, that's not my husband. He would never do anything like that. She couldn't believe it herself. But anyway, so this is what he did in his life. This is how he committed the crime. And the guy who lines up these bodies in a, in a row like this and say, why wouldn't he just leave them where he shot them and jump in his car and take off? Because that's that consistent with somebody who has obsessive compulsive personality disorder.
0: Over the years, many people had believed that John List had actually committed suicide. But John List wouldn't do that because he felt if he took his own life, he wouldn't go to heaven this way he could murder his family and they would go to heaven then later he could confess his sins and be forgiven so he could then go to heaven himself so he
1: supposedly later on said somebody i was faced with two choices when i lost my job and my money was running out i could either go on welfare but that would have been humiliating i would have been in disgrace to be on welfare And so, and I couldn't take welfare. That would have violated what my father ingrained in me from the time I was a young boy, is how I was supposed to take care of my family. And so I I couldn't do that. And so the only thing that he could think of was to send his wife and his mother and his three children to heaven. And in order to go to heaven, you have to die first.
0: Earlier in the show... Ken said that John List was proposed as a suspect in the D.B. Cooper airline hijacking because of the timing of his disappearance two weeks prior and multiple matches to the hijacker's description. The reasoning behind that was that he was a fugitive with nothing left to lose. But when List was questioned by FBI agents after his capture, he denied any involvement. A jury would find John List guilty of five counts of first-degree murder, In April of 1990, a judge would sentence him to life in prison without the possibility of parole.
1: John Emil List will be eternally synonymous with concepts of selfishness, horror, and evil. He is a man who could coldly, calculatingly, and cunningly conceive and carry out a cowardly plan to assassinate each of his three children.
0: The idea that a mild-mannered John List who appeared so normal so average is out of the blue capable of murdering his entire family in cold blood and then poof disappears into thin air and starts an entirely new life it's hard to wrap our heads around someone so average being capable of such evil
1: his only defense at trial was that he was under all this pressure and stress and everything like that and so on but it was just a feeble attempt he kind of had nothing to lose You know, the only thing he could have worked out a deal, I mean, I think he realized that whether he pled guilty or was found guilty, he was going to jail for the rest of his life. You can't murder children and your entire family and expect to get some kind of special thing. Okay, we're just going to send you to jail for a year and a half or something.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, that's the thing that I always, I never understand is people who actually want to go to trial and be in front of everybody and and have it be so public when there's absolutely no way you're getting out of it. Like, why wouldn't you just make a deal?
1: Well, that's, that's what I used to say, that a lot of times in the case i during dealt with sex crimes against children, the offenders would plead what I would call guilty but not guilty. They realized that the last thing they wanted to have is all the details of what they had done, the specific details of what they had done to the children to come out in open court. So by pleading guilty, they would avoid that from happening. But as soon as he pleads guilty, From the next moment on, the next time he opens his mouth, he explains to everybody who listened, I pled guilty, but let me tell you why I'm not guilty. I love children so much I didn't want to put them through the stress of the trial and so on and so forth. So they come up with all these explanations. So I think a lot of what he did during the trial and when they examined him and so on, he talked about losing his job and how much pressure he was under and so on and so forth. And he had all these problems and they asked him, obvious question is, why did you kill yourself? And he said he thought that under his religious beliefs that would prevent him from going to heaven, and he had hoped to someday join his family in heaven.
0: In March of 2008, John List died from pneumonia in prison. And if you're wondering about the List home, it mysteriously burned down in August of 1972, nine months after the List murders. The fire was officially ruled as arson, and it remains unsolved with no suspects. Up next, we'll discuss the list case in the bonus content of Criminal Mischief with Carolyn and Brandon. And as always, thanks for listening. From Cloud 10, Criminal Mischief is a pie-in-the-sky production recorded in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. We're produced by Brandon Morgan and myself. Music by Soundstripe. I'm Carolyn Osorio, your writer and host.